Good morning. Good to uh, see you all again. My name is Josh Suizo. I've met many of you, but perhaps not all of you. I'm visiting from Reformation Church in Elizabeth. Uh, and I invite you now for our scripture passage for the sermon to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, and we will read verses 14 through 36. This particular uh, passage is the sermon that the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and we are starting our scripture reading right after the uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit has happened and the people have been speaking in other languages, the wonderful works of God. So keep that in mind as we read the passage. And I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word here. This is Acts 2, beginning in verse 14. Let us hear now the Word of God. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence." Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh See corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand 
till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is the word of God. Amen. You may be seated, and let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer now. Our God and Father, we praise you that you have exalted your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, far above all things, above all principalities and powers, above every name that is named. And we are here to re- remember uh, our Lord Jesus and his kingship and his, uh, his glory. Uh, we ask that you would teach us now that as we come uh, back to this pivotal sermon uh, in Acts 2, that we might understand it, uh, that we might believe it, and that it would bring forth fruit in our lives. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we are in Acts 2 this morning, brothers and sisters, I I so appreciate this passage because it is so important for us. And it's important because it is the very first sermon preached of the New Covenant Age. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And what is the very first thing that the apostles declare to the world? It is this sermon. Of course, the Jews are here are the focus, but it is relevant to all the sermons that we see in Acts. And it is an exciting message because it brings us back to the basics of what we believe and the implications of what we believe for faith and life. And so I think it's very important for us to get a handle upon this sermon and to understand what Peter was saying to those that heard him. This was a sermon that God used mightily to bring about the conversion of some 3,000 souls to the Lord. Uh, It was, of course, the Spirit's blessing that the sermon had this effect, and therefore it is important for us to see what Peter had to say. Now, as I've uh, been beginning to go through the book of Acts, I'm just beginning my way through this book back at at Reformation, I'm in Acts chapter 3, I've already seen that one of the most prominent themes of this book is resurrection. Resurrection is central in the book of Acts. In, In fact, if you look at all the sermons in Acts, you will find far more references to the resurrection than you will find to the death of Christ and his crucifixion. Not that that's unimportant, of course. But the resurrection was so important in the preaching of the apostles because it meant the dawn of a whole new period of human history. The world was changing with the resurrection of Christ. And Peter's sermon concludes, I I think, here at verse 36. And I want you to look at verse 36 because we're going to come back to the conclusion many times as we look at Peter's sermon. But I think this is Peter's point uh, in verse 36, and this is what he says. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Uh, Peter is speaking of the victory of Jesus, that Jesus is victorious over sin, over death. Uh, He has now ascended. He is king over all things. He is the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made in the Old Testament. And so this is a message of victory. And I think this is something that we need to have a sense of, or perhaps recover a sense of, is the victory of Christ. 
to know that Christ reigns, to know that he is bringing all enemies under his feet, to know that the kingdom of Christ will not fail in the earth, to know that the church of Jesus will be victorious. These are very important things for us because as we face difficulties in this fallen world, we need to have a sense of that victory. It makes a difference when we get up every day to know that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. What will enable us to live godly, righteous lives in the present age? Well, it must be that Jesus has risen from the dead and we have his resurrection power within us to be able to do these things that he's called us to do. Otherwise, there's no hope. And when we are facing afflictions or an abundance of spiritual or physical suffering, to know that we have hope in the resurrection of Christ, that these things will one day come to an end, is very important for us. It gives us confidence when human institutions let us down, when people let us down, to know that Christ will not fail us, that Christ's kingdom will be victorious. He will bring his purposes to pass. And so we need to have a sense of victory because we are at times, uh, we at times have a defeatist attitude. We at times feel down uh, as we face the afflictions of this present life. And so Peter gives us a sense of optimism. And so I hope that each of us, as we look at Peter's message, will come away with a renewed sense of optimism. And I would say that the main point of Peter's sermon, if I was to really boil it down, is that Jesus won. Jesus is victorious. Now, to get to that point of the resurrection of Christ and all that was happening through Jesus, Peter has to lay out a few other things first for us. And he begins by explaining what was happening before the eyes of his audience that day. And as I mentioned, we are picking up this sermon right after the uh, events of Pentecost have begun to unfold. The the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon the, the disciples, and they are now speaking in other languages that they previously did not know. And let's, let's get our bearings here as to where we are at in history, where this sermon is placed. Uh, we remember this is the day of Pentecost taking place. This uh, day of Pentecost was a Jewish feast, the Feast of the First Fruits. Uh, Pentecost simply meant 50, uh, 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was an important opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ to the world because people had come from all over uh, the Mediterranean world for these feasts. There was people from all over the place, we learn, uh, that heard the message. They were predominantly uh, Jews from other lands that had been dispersed around the surrounding regions. And we learned that they stretched from uh, all the way over into the Western European regions, all the way down into Persia, in fact. If you look at the list of the people uh, that were hearing uh, the, the mighty works of God declared in tongues. And so this was an amazing and miraculous event. And what Peter wants everybody to understand was this is something that God had said would happen. He says... Effectively, 800 years ago, Joel said that this day would come. And so listen to what he says in Acts 2, verses 14 through 17. Uh, He says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. 
But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. This was an amazing thing happening to have all these people speaking in all these other languages. And of course, if you didn't know uh, most of those languages, it would have sounded like gibberish, even though it wasn't. It was actual human languages. Uh, And they said, okay, this is just a bunch of drunk people. And Peter says, that's not the case. And there was was two reasons that that was not the case. First of all, it was about 9 a.m., and everybody was supposed to know that about 9 a.m. in the morning, nobody's doing any drinking. This is the hour of prayer, morning prayer. Uh, This is not what people do. But more importantly than that, what Peter is saying is that this is something that God said would come to pass. This is not drunkenness. This is the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And, of course, drunkenness was not a good explanation because how else do you explain somebody who previously didn't know a human language now speaking in that human language uh, and people understanding it? That's not something a drunk person would be able to do. And what Joel 2 prophesied was the day that would come as the new covenant dawned in which the Holy Spirit would be poured out in great measure upon the people of God. And that was the emphasis of Joel's prophecy is that it would not, the the work of the Spirit would not be so limited as it was in the old covenant age, but it would be uh, broadly expanded to encompass all the people of God. And that's why Joel had prophesied that men and women and sons and daughters and old men and men servants and maid servants, that everybody, the whole gamut of God's servants, would have the Holy Spirit indwelling them and empowering them to speak the word of God to those around them. Now, why is this important? Why is this significant? Well, as we think about the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant age, we need to recognize that, of course, the Spirit of God was very active in the age of the Old Covenant. The the Spirit of God regenerated sinners and brought them to life, just as he does in the New Covenant age. Uh, The Holy Spirit was present to empower the kings and the prophets to do their work for the Lord. Uh, we know the Holy Spirit was active in the prophets, like Amos, who we heard earlier, and, and, and directing men like Amos to speak the truth of God to that generation. So we would never say that the Holy Spirit was absent from the Old Covenant age. But what Joel was saying is this, the Spirit of God is going to come in such greater measure than it was in the Old Covenant age. And that that word poured out is a picture of the abundance of the Holy Spirit. The the idea of pouring out is like a dam of water being released. And then there's this immense water flow that comes down and sweeps through. And the idea was that the people of God, they were swept through by the Spirit of God and empowered to do uh, what God had called them to do, which was to declare his word, to declare his works. And part of the anticipation of this event goes back to an account in the book of Numbers. Uh, Back in Numbers 11, verses 27 through 29, this unique event takes place when the children of Israel are, are wandering in the wilderness. And Moses, of course, had the Spirit of God upon him. The Spirit equipped him to to lead and to make judgments and to declare the word of God Uh, But Moses at times needed help. He needed 
uh, additional wisdom and guidance. He needed other men that would have this equipping of the Spirit to lead the people of God. And in Numbers chapter 11, there are a group of 70 upon which the Spirit of God comes. And then what happens in this moment is that the Spirit of God falls upon some other, call them random guys in the camp. Uh, and Joshua is not happy about this. He thinks that something is disorderly about this. Uh, and listen to what uh, Moses says in Numbers 11, verse 27. Uh, it says, a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Then Moses said to him, are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. See, Moses had the right perspective here. He says that we don't want the work of the Spirit restricted. Oh, that the Spirit of God was poured out upon all of God's people, that they could declare forth the words of God. That would be a great blessing to be desired. And it's this very thing that I think Moses is anticipating that takes place on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit is poured out upon all these different people in great measure. And when it says that they're, they're speaking in tongues, as we learn, we, we see that tongues is itself actually a form of prophecy. I believe that is indeed the case. It's a declaring forth of the word of God in other human languages. And it's important to remember when we think of the word prophecy that even though it does involve future foretelling, it most often simply means a forthtelling, a declaring of God's will, of God's word to his people. And so this is what we see taking place on the day of Pentecost, is they're declaring what God has done through Christ. Now, one other detail here before we get into the uh, meat of the sermon where he connects this to Jesus is the verses 19 through 20, where... Peter says that part of Joel's prophecy is that there was going to be signs uh, in the heavens above and signs on the earth beneath. And I want us to understand what he is speaking of here. He says in verse 19, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So Joel was anticipating a day of judgment and reckoning. That's what the day of the Lord means. Sometimes it refers to occurrences in history of God's judgments. At other times, it, it refers to the final day of judgment, ultimately. And what Joel is speaking about here is that when the Spirit of God is poured out, there's going to be signs that accompany it, and they're going to be signs that affect the heavens and in the earth as well. And there's been discussion and debate about how this actually comes to pass. What does this refer to as it, uh, as it applies to Acts chapter 2? And any time we read prophetic language, we can make certain mistakes, of course. We, we, we could make the mistake of taking such language directly, literally, when it says the moon is turned into blood. Of course, I think we agree that that does not mean that the solid mass of the moon is turned into liquid blood. That would be a misunderstanding of the prophetic language. But it does speak to things that the people were going to see taking place. Uh, 
And as I read Acts 2, it is, it is my uh, judgment that these particular signs were very relevant to the present generation that Peter was speaking to. Uh, do remember that many of the people at the Feast of Pentecost, perhaps many of them, had actually been there for the crucifixion of Christ. Whether or not they saw the event, they perhaps would have witnessed the signs that took place, including the darkness upon the land for three hours, there was an earthquake, there was a resurrection of some of the saints in Matthew 27. And as you work your way up to the pivotal event of AD 70 and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, it is amazing to read of the historical records that have been left behind for us. There are records of earthquakes in all different kinds of places. There's records of famines and, and wars and strange signs in the heavens. And you can read about these things in Josephus and uh, Tacitus and Eusebius, some of these ancient historians, they, they will record for you things that are really remarkable. Uh, astronomical signs in the skies, chariots running through the skies, and you think, this can't be true, this couldn't have happened. But it would all be consistent with exactly what Joel had said would take place in the signs that were then coming. And especially when he says blood and fire and vapor of smoke, those things were quite literally seen in the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, it's, it's difficult, uh, it's almost hard to stomach to even read some of the accounts of what took place. And so when, when Peter is telling them that the day of the Lord is coming, call upon the name of the Lord, he, I believe, is speaking of something very imminent to those that were hearing him. No doubt it has relevance for us as well, even beyond that generation. And I think that as we get to verse 21, this is the lead-off text that that moves us into the topic of Jesus. So look at verse 21. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is what Joel had said, and now uh, Peter is going to apply this to Jesus. He's going to say, the name of the Lord is Jesus. He is both Lord and Christ. You need to call upon his name to be saved from this day of the Lord that is soon to come. And the promise of Joel stands true today, brothers and sisters, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the scripture says, you will be saved. And so we come now to the, the primary exposition of the sermon. Now that we've considered Joel and its meaning, we come to Acts 2, verses 22 through 24, and now Peter is going to focus upon the main subject of his sermon, and the main subject is Jesus. Listen to what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, as we work our way into the rest of Peter's sermon, I want you to notice something about the sermon, and that is this. Peter's sermon is an exposition and application of the Bible, what does he quote from? Well, directly, he quotes from Joel chapter 2, which we've already seen. He quotes from Psalm 16, 
And then he quotes from Psalm 110. In a very short sermon, at least as it's recorded by Luke, he brings out these three Old Testament passages. He exposits them briefly and makes direct application of them to his audience. And this is a helpful reminder for us that biblical preaching modeled upon the apostles is is preaching that is exposition of the scriptures. Even Peter, who's filled with the Spirit, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he is expositing the Old Covenant scriptures for his hearers. And this is our mandate as well, as we follow in the footsteps of the apostles. It is our aim to preach to you the word of God, to not give you our own word, but the very word of God, because that is what we need to hear above all. Now, what do we find in Peter's sermon? Having looked at the Joel passage, what what are the things that he tells us about Jesus? Well, it's, it, I, I would boil it down to three particular points about Jesus, and I'll give you these, and then we will unfold them. First of all, he says that Jesus was crucified by wicked and lawless hands. But then he says, this happened according to the predestining plan of God. That's the first thing he tells us. Secondly, he tells us that Jesus rose from the dead in fulfillment of the promise of Psalm 16. He says, David prophesied the resurrection of Christ, and this has happened now. And then next, he's having risen from the dead, Jesus ascended to the right hand of God in fulfillment of Psalm 110. And from that place of exaltation and kingship, Jesus is Lord of all. And that's how he gets to his conclusion of verse 36, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So let's go deeper into uh, these themes that Peter proclaims. And as we do so, I, I make it my aim today that you yourselves, that all of us who hear would have the conviction of verse 36, that every one of us would know would believe that Jesus is Lord and Christ. When we say Lord, we simply mean he reigns over all. He is God himself, uh, and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And when we say that he is Christ, a very familiar term, but an important one to understand, when we say he is Christ, we mean that he is Messiah. He is the fulfillment of everything. Everything the Bible said would come to pass for the redemption of God's people. That is what we're saying when we say Jesus is Lord and Christ. So first, we begin then with the crucifixion. Peter says that this crucifixion, this death of Christ, happened according to the predestining hand of God. Verse 23. Him being delivered... By the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. If I was to tell you the top three verses in the entire Bible to understand the sovereignty of God, I would have to say that verse 23 is in that top three list. Because it is so plain, it is so clear to us that the most evil act ever committed that actually accomplished our redemption was determined by God. It was not only known by God, but it was determined by God to take place exactly as it took place. And yet it was still a wicked act. 
how much we can learn from verse 23 about the sovereignty of God, how we can bring together these mysteries and say, God is sovereign. He predestines all things that come to pass, but he is not the author of evil. There are evil actions that take place, and yet even through evil, God was able to bring about the ultimate good for us and for our salvation. What clarity this brings to us. Uh, Acts 4, 27 and 28, Peter, he brings out the very same emphasis again in the next sermon in Acts 4, 27. Listen, well, actually, this is the prayer, I should say, uh, as the people of God pray following the persecution of the Jews. And listen to how they pray to God. It says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, I could ask each of you to, to tell me, perhaps after the sermon, how do you reconcile these things? I want your explanation. I want you to finally help me understand how is it that God is sovereign over what took place, and yet the people who killed Jesus are responsible for what they did, and they need to repent. They need to repent of killing Christ and receive Christ to be saved. I want you to explain that to me. Well, of course, bringing these two truths together and reconciling them in our minds is not easy. It has occupied the most brilliant minds for centuries in attempting to resolve how these two fit together. And some people, they're not willing to maintain both sides of that, and they will simply say, we're going to choose one over the other. Well, we can't have both because they can't make sense of both in their finite minds. But what I want you to see is that the apostles were not afraid of proclaiming this very truth. They were not afraid to say, God predestined what happened, and you need to repent of your evil actions that you participated in in killing Christ. And so this very evil act brought about the redemption of the world. God was able, in his infinite wisdom, to bring about the greatest good from what Satan and evil mankind had purpose to do. That's an amazing thing to contemplate. And we know that the Lord God had prophesied that this would take place. We, we recall the words of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs he, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Above all the other actors, above the Romans, above the Jews, above Pontius Pilate, uh, above all these things was the purpose of God to afflict and strike his son for the sins of of God's people and to redeem them and heal them. Now, if the most evil act ever committed in history brought about the greatest good for the salvation of the world, do you think it's possible that God can work all other things for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose? That's the promise of Scripture, and of course, we, we, as we go through such evils of this fallen world, as we deal with afflictions, we say, I do not see at present how God is working all things together for good, or at least I don't see all of it. But I want you to, ar I want you to argue with me, to reason with me, I should say, from the greater to the lesser. If the greatest act of redemption came about through the evil of mankind and, and, and Satan, 
then God has the ability and his infinite wisdom and power to turn those things which are bad and evil in your life and bring about good through them. Now imagine for a moment that all the evil you experience in this life is completely meaningless and purposeless. Do remember that that is the worldview of many Americans. Uh, I don't think they like to put it this way. I don't hear this presented. I don't hear this preached on television very much. But that is, in essence, the message. All the things, all the evil, all the afflictions you experience in this life are completely meaningless and purposeless. That's a depressing message. That is what many people believe. But according to this passage, according to all the promises of the word of God, we cannot and we dare not believe such a conclusion because we see that in the redemption of Christ, in his death, in his crucifixion, God brings about good even through what evil man and evil Satan intend. And may that be a comfort to us, brothers and sisters, as we face things that we otherwise cannot explain. May it give us hope. Now, beyond the hope that comes from that fact, we also now move to the, the truth of Christ's resurrection, which is a major emphasis of our passage. And so, now that Peter has explained the death and the crucifixion of Christ, he, he moves now to explain to his hearers that Psalm 16, a psalm of David, has been fulfilled in Christ. And so listen to what he says in uh, verses 29 through 32. He says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseen this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And so as you look at Psalm 16, as it's found in the Old Testament, or as you look at it in Acts 2, you read it and you find this uh, remarkable uh, conviction and this promise that David has from the Lord, and it says in Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And Peter makes a very good point here. He says, now listen, all of you dwelling in Jerusalem, you guys know that David is dead. It's a very straightforward point. David is not alive anymore. We actually know where his tomb is. You can go down to David's tomb. You can look at it. You could say, David is in there. His body's in there. And so Peter says, clearly then, the promises of Psalm 16 must transcend David. They must apply beyond David. And yes, David himself has the resurrection hope. He will one day be raised from the dead. But in the preeminent sense of not seeing corruption it was Jesus who was not allowed to stay in the tomb such that his body saw corruption. And so Peter says David was a prophet. He's speaking about future things. And David foresaw, maybe he didn't fully understand it, but he foresaw that one day this event was going to take place. And listen to what he says in verse 
30 and 31 again. I'm going to read these verses again because I want you to see an important connection that he makes. So listen to verses 30 and 31. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseen this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. Now, I've slowed down here because I want you to understand the connection that Peter is drawing. He's saying, David saw the day in which his successor, the Messiah, would sit on his throne. That's what he's saying. And he says, foreseeing this, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Here's the connection. Jesus' resurrection inevitably involves his enthronement on the throne of David. Peter does not separate these things out. He doesn't say, you get, Jesus gets resurrected, and then 2,000 to 5,000 years later, he gets to sit on David's throne. There are some theories of theology out there that, that separate those out. But I don't think that that's the case. I think what Peter is saying is that David foresaw the resurrection of Christ, which would lead to his ascension and his enthronement over all things. They're not separable. And I emphasize this because there are Christian denominations and Christian teachers who tell us that Jesus is not on the throne, or they might say the throne of David. Sometimes they're particularly expecting that there needs to be an actual, physical, literal throne in Jerusalem. Jesus has to come and sit on it. And I believe that if, if that is the view that is held, it is utterly missing the point of Peter's sermon. I think it's quite clear that what Peter wants us to understand is that Jesus is on the throne right now. He is reigning right now. Now notice what else he quotes. After giving us Psalm 16, now he moves to Psalm 110. He says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, notice Peter interprets the meaning of Psalm 110 as referring to ascension and as referring to sitting on the throne at the right hand of God. And so he sees all of this as an event very closely related together. He says David did not ascend, but the implication is Jesus did ascend. Jesus ascended, and he's now sitting at the right hand of God, and he is at present bringing all enemies under his footstool. Now, as we think about that language, till I make your enemies your footstool, what does that, that mean? That's not very familiar uh, language to us. We don't even think about, uh, even of military ideas, they don't really come to mind of a footstool. This is an ancient kind of picture. Well, I think it's helpful here to go back to one of the other few references in the uh, Bible to this picture of making someone your footstool. And you'll find this in Joshua chapter 10, of all places. It's an interesting location. Uh, but in Joshua 10, verses 24 through 25, you will find this very picture spelled out for us. And so, kids, this is a helpful way to get at the idea of what does it mean to make somebody a footstool for your feet? So what happens in Joshua 10 is that the children of Israel, they're entering Canaan, they're conquering as the Lord had called them to do and had equipped them to do. 
and they are having great successes by God's uh, provision. And, and what Joshua does is he has these Canaanite kings come out. They're conquered, and he has them all lay on the ground. And then he tells all the captains of Israel, he says, put your feet on their necks. Joshua 10, verse 24, it says this, So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And so why did Joshua have the men of Israel put their feet on the necks of these kings? Well, it was to show that these kings were utterly defeated. They are subdued. They're, they have no power left. If you can put your foot on their necks, they are done. And so as we draw this back to the picture of Psalm 110 that Peter has drawn out for us, he is telling us that King Jesus is at the right hand of God right now, and he is at present conquering his enemies. He is at present bringing his enemies under his footstool. What is the implication of this, brothers and sisters, for us? How important is this in our understanding? Well, what it means, as I said at the very beginning, is that Jesus is victorious and he is winning right now. Now, as he brings people under his feet, this can mean uh, two different things. One of the ways he brings people under his feet is in the positive sense. That is, he, he brings people to submission to him. He brings them under his gentle and easy yoke. He saves them from their sins. He subdues them to himself as our king. That's what our catechism says. He subdues us to himself. It's a good kind of subduing to be under the, the reign of King Jesus. But it also means that for those that oppose Jesus, those enemies of his, which of course involve Satan and the demons and the hostile, unbelieving world that will not repent, for those that oppose him, they will be brought down, they will be destroyed, they will be done away with, they will be judged. For some who oppose Jesus, he, he turns them from being enemies to being his servants by saving them from their sins. The Apostle Paul is a good example of this. He was an enemy of Christ. He persecuted the church of God. He was uh, bent upon destroying the people of God and fighting against Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to serve me, and you're going to suffer for me. That's what Jesus determined for Paul. But for others, some continue to oppose, and he and Jesus will indeed conquer them. Now, this passage, Psalm 110, and this passage, Acts 2, needs to shape how we think about the world and how we think about history. And my purpose here is not to present to you a particular view of the millennium. We can perhaps discuss that afterwards. I won't argue for a particular view of the millennium. But I will say this. I believe Acts chapter 2 gives us reason to believe and expect and hope that Jesus will do great things in the world, and we will see it with our own eyes. And how do you view the world at present? Do you view the world as out of control? Does evil always win? Is, is history just a long succession of defeats for God's people? 
Or does Psalm 110 inform your view of history? Does it shape how you think about the reign of Christ in the present day? Do you believe that Christ's enemies are being defeated? Do you believe that Jesus' kingdom will advance uh, all over the world? And whatever your exact view of these things, I, I would urge you to give credit to Christ for what he has already done. Just think about the last 2,000 years, for example. You start with 120 people in an upper room. And now you have billions of professing Christians all over the world. That's an amazing thing to contemplate. Jesus said that his kingdom was a mustard seed that would grow to be the largest of all trees. I think we've already seen that taking place. I think we have seen that mustard seed grow and expand. And even right now, while we are, are here, there are people all over this globe worshiping Jesus or preparing to worship Jesus as they gather for corporate worship sometime today. All over the world, every continent. It's an amazing thing to contemplate. And so we, we not, should not have a perspective that, of history that says Jesus loses, the church loses over and over and over again until Jesus comes back. I would discourage you from believing that perspective. And yes, I agree that uh, Jesus' people, they suffer. There's persecution. There's difficulty. They overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. But I'm, I'm here to remind us that what Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost is that Jesus is bringing his enemies under his footstool. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Paul here again speaks of the present reign of Christ. And he, he uses the same language. He says... For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And then he anticipates the return of Christ and then the consummation of the kingdom of Christ and all that will come. But Paul is saying, Jesus is reigning. Jesus is bringing enemies under his feet. And so, of course, I cannot tell you the exact measure of the kingdom growth of Christ. I can't measure it for you. I can't tell you when Jesus comes back. And, and I certainly would say that there's going to be opposition, there's going to be wheat, and there's going to be tares, as Jesus said. But we should expect, based upon these passages, that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will triumph, it will grow, it will do great things in the world. That much is clear from Peter's sermon. Well, I want to bring us now to back to the conclusion of Peter's sermon in verse 36 and then present some important questions for each of us in response. Peter, having laid out all of these biblical passages and having set forth who Christ is and what he has done, he says this in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, it's at this point, uh, friends, uh, that we need to bring this message to bear upon our own hearts. We, we need to consider the preaching of Peter and the re-preaching of this message today. Have, have we ourselves acknowledged Jesus to be Lord over all things and Lord of your life? Uh, is that your commitment? Do you believe that steadfastly and act according to that commitment? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? That is, do you believe that he is the one that brings to pass all the things that God said would come to pass to redeem God's people? 
Do you believe that he is the final revelation of God who speaks as a prophet of God, who declares to us the truth of the gospel? Do you believe that he is the priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for sin and as one who has gone to the Father's right hand to intercede on behalf of sinners who draw near to him in faith? And these are crucial and personal and, and, and eternally important questions that we all must answer. It is not sufficient for us to simply hear this word and then not respond to it. Uh, and really, the call of this passage, as we will find uh, and I don't have the opportunity to preach it today, but Peter then tells the people that heard it that day, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized and, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, that is the implication. And Peter's sermon preached 2,000 years ago is just as relevant today as it was then. And in our case, we have all the more reason to see its truth because we have the testimony of the 66 books of Scripture telling us plainly who Jesus is. And we also have seen the testimony of 2,000 years of history where we have seen the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ playing out all over the world as uh, peoples and tribes and tongues and nations have come to him and have been transformed by him. And so I, I hope that our, our sense of uh, victory, our sense of encouragement as of being members of the kingdom of Christ will be renewed as we have been in this passage today. So I invite you now to uh, close with me in prayer. Our God and Father, we praise you for what you have done. You have done great things for us. Uh, we are glad to read of the redemption and the reign of Jesus Christ over all things. I pray that we ourselves would be those committed followers under the banner of King Jesus and ready and willing to serve him in all that he calls us to do. Uh, convince us of this, Lord. Uh, awaken us, perhaps, if we have not grasped this message ourselves, that we might respond to it in faith and in repentance. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.